As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. COVID on campus. Dane County and Madison health officials are now ordering students who live in 22 sororities and fraternities to quarantine for two weeks. We can only leave to go to the bathroom. Um, Food is delivered uh, outside. Police also may intervene with social gatherings if they become too large. It's all been about flexibility and helping people think differently about how we can do life, right? Um, Not normally in this new normal, in a way that still connects us and moves us forward, but has that premium on life and health and wellness. As COVID-19 cases rise in Wisconsin, colleges and universities are trying to figure out how to keep students safe and learning. Now administrators are defending plans some students and faculty have called fundamentally flawed. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning, Amanda. Today is Tuesday, September 15th. And it is also Fox 6 reporter Derricka Williams' Open Record debut. Hi, Derricka. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So this has been uh, an especially interesting week when it comes to students on college campuses in Wisconsin. We've been hearing a lot about the uh, spikes in COVID-19 or or, uh, concerns about uh, COVID-19 outbreaks in some of these college campuses and universities getting some pushback for welcoming students back on campus for the fall semester. Derricka, what kind of safety plans have colleges and universities here in the Badger State put in place I'm sure they knew, they saw some of this coming, but what did they put in place and how are those plans going? You know, it seems as though they're doing the best they can. Uh, obviously, following recommendations, CDC guidelines, um, social distancing. They, I know I was at Concordia actually last week and um, they were telling me how even when it comes to the lunch area, how you would normally see a whole bunch of kids kind of sitting in a room next to each other eating and it's kind of a communal space. They've... Um, taking conference-like rooms and different other spaces to allow for more social distancing and seating. So I think um, the school also is offering, even though kids are on campus, they have a virtual option if they decide that they want to stay in their rooms perhaps or go to class if they wanted to um, reduce the reduction of class sizes as well. That's another thing. So they're not as populated. Um, Of course, different sanitizing stations, things like that. And there was one thing that was interesting too. Um, They had something that was called a COVID room. So when there was an infection, they only had about 10, this was as of last week, but only two were residents in the halls. So one of the kids, one of the students, um, self-isolated, was able to go home, but the other one was in a COVID room. So within that room, they'll have people 
that can come and do wellness checks, mental wellness checks, and just kind of keep them isolated so they're out of the population. So I think they're planning and doing different things. Um, if cases arise, they're ready. Uh, and they're also obviously trying to mitigate the situation as much as possible, too. How are those plans going? Because we know that it's it's not realistic to expect that there will be zero COVID cases. As a society, I don't know that we've decided how many cases are going to be an acceptable number of COVID cases for any college or university to have. But one of the the criticisms of some of these plans is that they rely on students themselves to engage in a lot of these practices when they're outside the classroom and not go to parties and not do a lot of things that are part of the typical college experience. And, And we've gotten a lot of questions from people over the last few weeks about how realistic of an expectation that is. Yeah, that's pretty tough to tell a college kid, hey, no parties for you, don't socialize. But uh, right now, I think that's needed. And um, acting in small groups or family pods or things like that, that's what they're asking folks to do, whether you have a suite, just kind of stay within that. UWM, actually, they were trying to be proactive in terms of curbing student parties and trying to slow the spread and even saying, you know, police may intervene if gatherings get too large. Um, And that could end up with you having some special education about COVID or even disciplinary action that goes on your record. So I think um, it's hard to control what these kids do, but they're doing the best that they can. And at least saying, hey, there will be repercussions because this has to slow. This has to curb at some point. You know, I, and I should, full disclosure, uh, point out that I have a stepson who attends Concordia University, and so I'm very familiar with the campus. It is uh, an isolated kind of campus. For one thing, it's a dry campus, so there aren't going to be a lot of alcohol parties in the dorms or anything like that, or, or big gatherings. It's also set aside. It doesn't sort of, it, it's not closely intermixed with stores and other parts of the community. So I, I would imagine there's, to some degree, it's, it's easy on a campus like that, or easier, to keep the student population isolated from the surrounding community, and it's a smaller population of students, so maybe easier to prevent large gatherings. We're seeing statewide some of these larger campuses, UWM, UW-La Crosse, obviously UW-Madison, where you have large student bodies, and we're seeing a significant number of the tests that are being done come back positive. What are the challenges at a, at a larger f- school like that when you've got a huge student population and in some cases small communities where the population may double when school is in session because so many people are coming in? How are they trying to keep all of these students coming together from spreading COVID into the community? So that's the tough part, I think. Um, the structure of it all with these residence halls, uh, there are so many kids, in essence, living together. Um, It's hard in a communal space to social distance. So I think it's really reliant upon students to be prudent with their own health and safety uh, because you can only do so much. I don't know if colleges are kind of how when we were uh, long halls, obviously one communal bathroom for the guy's side, girl's side, you know, and you can only sanitize so much until it comes back to, you know, students kind of taking this on their own too. So, Derica, I know you've been really immersed in how COVID-19 is affecting education, be that colleges and universities or K through 12. I'd imagine, of course, the big difference with the colleges and universities is that you're not just dealing with what's in the classroom, right? There are so many other factors you can't control. I know you said one word that comes up a lot 
is balance. So how are we trying to balance what might be safest for the students versus the way they might learn the best? Because those two aren't always going to be one and the same. Yeah, from speaking with a lot of educators, um, many say learning is more effective in person. And especially there are certain kids that have special needs. And I think having that interaction helps them learn and uh, the attention span needs to be there for that. So sometimes virtual learning can be a little bit difficult. Um, So while virtual learning is best for some families saying, you know, for my health and safety, um, if schools are able to do it in person, I think they're taking those safety precautions and measures because they feel as though um, that's the best learning environment uh, to get success from kids. And um, I've noticed a difference, too, when it's come to some undergraduates, obviously, versus the college level. Um, We are seeing cases kind of pop up around our area. I think in Waukesha County, as of yesterday, there were 16 districts that had cases um, that they were investigating active cases. Um, Washington and Ozaki County, more than a dozen schools had active investigations. So I think they understand that at some point it's going to creep in. But I think um, doing these measures and kind of having these small groups, uh, the barriers, the plexiglass, you know, my kids are at school with a little plexiglass around them. Um, There's contact tracing. So I think that they're trying to do it to mitigate any risks. So um, feeling that once again, in-person learning would be most effective for them. I feel like the challenge with so much of this is it's a chicken or the egg thing because the more testing schools do, the more likely they're going to find some positive cases. The good side of that is you have knowledge. You know where there might be an outbreak and you might be able to prevent that from spreading to other parts of the campus. The bad news is we report those numbers and people go, holy cow, they found a bunch of cases at this campus or that campus. So the, the more you test, the more likely you're going to find the very things that alarm people in the first place, is that one of the concerns here? Because I, I looked at some of the numbers of the UW campuses. Some are certainly doing more testing than others, and I don't know, is there a consistency as to who's being tested and under what circumstances? Um, that, that seems to play into the kind of numbers we're going to see. Um, I, I think... It- different schools vary. Um, I know testing is available. uh, So sometimes you don't have to have the symptoms. You could feel like you're asymptomatic or what have you and go get tested. And if you do turn out to be positive without those symptoms, once again, you're adding to those numbers and vice versa. There are those who are physically sick and feeling that. So I don't think it's that per se. Amanda, any thoughts on that? Because I, th- I think that's, you know, if we go back to uh, a, 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 a famous leader of this country who once said, if we weren't testing, we wouldn't have any cases. We know that's not true. Not testing doesn't mean there won't be coronavirus, but not testing would certainly mean we don't know where it is. Testing means we know where it is, but does that raise alarm bells when we start to catch cases? Yeah, and I think that's why it's about what numbers are we looking at and what's the percentage of positives that we're getting. Now, that percentage is still affected by how many tests you do, right? And then there's the idea of what kind of testing are you doing? So there's the rapid testing where you get the results far more quickly, but then there are concerns about how accurate that is. I know that UW-Madison was talking about doing the uh, test that involves basically using your spit 
in the test and you know will that affect the numbers and how widespread can they roll that out last i checked uw madison had a about a 10 percent positive rate which is still something that we'd consider high it's it's considered high when we talk about the percent positive rate in the state of wisconsin so i to me the the most confusing part of this is that we know that it's impossible to eliminate COVID from college campuses. We haven't really seemed to settle on what is an acceptable number of cases to see on campus. And that's where you have students and faculty sounding the alarm, at least with UW-Madison, and you have administrators saying, okay, hold on, cool your jets. We're doing everything that we're going to do. We're trying to enforce this, um, even getting the police involved in some cases, investigating students for uh, possible COVID violations. But you just wonder how effective that's going to be. And by the way, we're not even into the heart of flu season. A lot of unknowns about how that's going to affect everything. I mean, it's only September 15th. We've only been back in session for a few weeks now, uh, and this we haven't even gotten into when a lot of people said would be the, the really concerning time of the year. Well, and that's why I bring this up about who's being tested and why. If you look at the numbers, from, and I, UW does a great job of having dashboards available that you can search and you can look at what's going on day by day with their testing. Right now, UW Lacrosse, I think their their testing results from yesterday were something like 37% positive. That's a huge number based on what we're used to seeing. But what we don't know is is UW Lacrosse only testing people who are symptomatic, and therefore it would be more likely that more tests would come up positive. Or are they doing some sort of a widespread testing regimen? It's hard to know sort of how that's playing out uh, from from campus to campus if there aren't consistent rules. I think it's interesting that the leader of the UW system right now is Tommy Thompson, longtime former Wisconsin governor, who also was the uh, you know, Secretary of Health for the United States. So this is something he ought to well understand and ought to have some good idea of what needs to be done. Then again, even when he was uh, uh, U.S. Secretary of Health, there was no COVID-19. So I guess this is a learning experience for all of us. Yeah, this is going to be a challenge. Uh, like you said, just kind of a couple weeks into school and we've already got dorms in quarantine and fraternities, sororities in quarantine. So uh, this is just going to be interesting to see how this goes with these numbers because they're just going to go up. They're going to go up. Derica, as a reporter, what are the big questions you're looking at, you know, over the next few weeks as you kind of get thrown into the the different assignments that involve covering COVID-19 as it relates to education with colleges and universities? What questions would you like to see answers to? Um, I think along the lines of what Brian talked about with the numbers and the positivity, but long term, you know, how is this going to work out? Are we going to just keep locking down for, you know, weeks at a time? And at that point, um, should the kids still even be on campus? Or, you know, just kind of how is this going to play out as we get into the flu season, as more numbers happen? Uh, We see already they decided to stop spring break, you know? So just kind of what are the changes and how are they trying to plan for the future um, as we deal with this? I wonder, I don't know if you're hearing any of this, Derica, when you're out talking to people, but I've got to think the 
the, the real fine line that universities have to walk here is, yes, you want to provide everything you can virtually, and we found a lot of stuff can be done virtually, but when students are physically on campus, if they're sitting in their dorm rooms and doing classes on a computer, it starts to raise the question, what am I doing here in the first place? If I can just do this from home, and then you start to wonder in the long term, is this going to be a concern for universities when they have to justify why we have all of these big expensive buildings and facilities? If I can get just as good of an education sitting in my living room as I can get on your big expensive campus, what do I need your big expensive campus for? I've got to think for the universities, that's a concern going forward long term. Definitely. Um tuition, you know, why am I paying to be on campus if I'm getting sent home? So that's going to be another sticky issue as well. Well, I want to ask something, Derica, that we were talking about before we started the podcast, because when we're talking education, you're covering it as a reporter, but there's also the experience as a parent. Uh, this has been a pretty unusual fall uh, trying to deal with the issues of virtual education and teaching kids. Uh, I, I think you said I don't know if you mind me sharing this on the podcast, but I think you said, I don't want to be a teacher. I now know I never want to be a teacher. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Oh, it is so hard. And I think you have um, more respect and you always respect teachers because they do so much. They are, you know, educating our children. Um, but just all of the work that goes into it uh, for the first week and change, my kids were home virtually and you know, it's it's a task. It's definitely a task to try to keep that engagement, uh, to also try to help. And I think age range plays a whole different role, too, because my son, who is in fourth grade, you know, he works the Chromebook better than I can. So he was pretty self-sufficient. But for my first grader, it's hard to keep a kid kind of sitting in a chair for hours during the day and, and kind of focus as you're looking at a screen. And, um, you know, there's let's say what, 20 boxes, there's some kids sitting on a bed, one's doing a flip, one, you know, so it's, it's trying to continue to keep that engagement and follow along with them. Um, but yeah, so virtual's hard. Um, so I definitely give it up to the teachers and the parents who are home sitting right next to their kids kind of going through lessons. And um, this is just something that I know MPS is doing this right now for the uh, at least next 30 days or so um, with their first phase with virtual learning. And um, it, it's also difficult from an aspect of not everybody could stay home. People have to find child care. People need to find certain facilities that can have proctors or somebody going through their schooling. So I think it, it definitely does put a strain on uh, families. But you know, for some and in certain instances with Milwaukee's numbers, that was the best option for right now. I, uh, Amanda, I think you just, you, you said the thing a couple of times so far that is the key, and I don't know that anyone has an answer to it, and maybe we'll discover this as we go, but it's the question of what are the benchmarks? Because whether it's K through 12 education or, or on college campuses, we're going to see cases, and everyone sort of knows that, but there is no real standard idea of how many cases are too many, and when does it become something where we need to shut back down? And maybe that's going to be something that evolves in the coming months, but I think knowing we're heading into traditional flu season time, there's that real fear that the numbers we're seeing initially are just the tip of the iceberg. How much worse will it need to get before they pull the plug, or will they figure some things out and, and maybe... We don't know what that benchmark is. Well, and I, I think the answer to that is I, I don't know if the people in charge know what that benchmark is either. If they do, those benchmarks 
haven't been communicated. And that's the confusing thing about following all of this. Uh, But even to build off of what Derica said, if, if you're talking college, campus, universities, think about how many people have on-campus jobs and work studies that they can't do right now. You know, there, there's a there's a, comp- a financial component of this, not just in terms of am I paying to be there in, camp- in person on campus, but in terms of how do I pay for my education in the first place. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about the burden that this is putting on students, on families who are still struggling to afford this, not that college was all that affordable before COVID hit. And I'm wondering what kind of systemic changes we're going to see that stick around as a result of this. So we're still only a couple weeks into the into the school year, into the semester uh, for K through 12 and for college campuses. Uh, But I think this is only the beginning. Just to add on to that, I'm also just thinking there are certain classes, there are certain courses that people are taking that need to be hands on. So that's going to be interesting too, to see how does that evolve when they're not in person for those classes. Yeah, it's hard to do a lab. I mean, you you can do certain simulations on a tablet or on a computer, but you know, cutting open a frog on a tablet isn't quite the same as doing it in person. Absolutely, that and and when you think about the population of students who are on college campuses, they're this eighteen to twenty four range, and we've seen that that's where the spikes are right now in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we're seeing so many more cases. But the symptoms may well be mild. These may be mild cases. So you have an age range of people who feel that this isn't that big of a deal health-wise. The concern is if you see a huge outbreak on a college campus, for instance, a Stevens Point, let's say, there's a big outbreak there. The community of Stevens Point isn't all 18 to 24. So there may be an outbreak on campus that then spreads into the community and becomes truly lethal, and that's obviously a concern going forward. So there's going to be a lot more uh, to that, that we remain or that remains to be seen, and that we'll be talking about as we go forward. Derica, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, and I know you're going to be covering these issues. So we look forward to having you back. That we've uh, gotten your debut in, and, and hopefully we'll <laughs> we'll be able to get you back another time on Open Record. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Love to talk some more, guys. All right, thanks. So we're going to continue bringing you these twice-weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic and so much more. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. Thank you again, Derica, for joining us today. And thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. And for Brian Polson, we will be back with our next episode on Thursday. Thursday.